Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. I want to direct your attention to an Old Testament story, but begin with a New Testament precept this morning as I launch a new series of messages. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, as Jesus gives instructions regarding having enough, having enough food, having enough clothing, having enough shelter, being worried about having enough, Jesus famously says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The emphasis, I think, is more often misplaced than properly recognized. I think that people often, if we were to really see what they think, what they feel in their hearts, what they expect of God, they would say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's the Western way of looking at it. I think the proper way to read it in Scripture because of the way that the context lies is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You see the difference in emphasis? Making God first. It's a passion of my heart and it's going to be directing this series. Lord, I pray that you would help us to establish this morning that divine priority, lordship, that you come first in everything. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be talking a lot over the next three to six weeks, touching on the subject of enough. Enough. Once upon a time, I gave very little thought to Social Security. (laughs) It's taken out of my check every week. I've been offended by that since I was like 18. But they just take it. It's called withholding. Hold that thought. We'll be back there at the end of the service. But withholding. They just take it. I've really not thought a whole lot. Being so far removed from the golden years, haven't really given it a whole lot of thought. The The word retirement for me has belonged to a galaxy far, far away. I've always seen myself, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you deceive yourself. We all do that, don't we? You know, I just want to lift you up this morning and tell you that you don't look nearly as good as you think you look in the mirror. Because in moments of honesty, we start noticing the things that we try and erase because we see ourselves. I've always seen myself within the context of being, I've, I've moved up between 30 and 40 now. That's how I see. That's how I see myself. And how many of you would just say, and of course, pastor. Leave it alone. I could sing all of the words of Rod Stewart's Forever Young been almost like an anthem forever young 
But Rod isn't forever, forever young. This is, a, this is why you should not use a blow dryer without a diffuser. <laughs> it dries your skin out. He's not forever young. Rod Stewart is 75 years old. I'm inspired by that. 75 years old, not forever young. Matter of fact, this is Hosea 9, 7. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. <laughs> yeah, reality bites pretty hard as the years advance. Since, since I last preached from this pulpit, I've achieved three score and one years. Passed another milestone, another birthday. And I recognize that I will soon be pinging the radar of the Social Security Administration. I am flooded weekly, sometimes twice a week, I get mail from the AARP. <laughs> Never asked for any mail from the AARP. I don't know how they got my, I just don't know how they got my address. I've never, the first time I got mail from them was a, a moment of deep offense. Only now am I getting to the point where rather than roll my eyes, I just can throw it in the trash. I get, I get inundated. And I know some of you would tell me, hey, it's a real good order. Guys, I gotta tell you, I haven't viewed myself that way. All of this really came home to, to me last week. Sherry and I, we, we always take a couple of weeks in, in the winter and then generally in the, in the early fall. Uh, every year, that's how we do our vacation. And we, we did a cruise to be away on my, on my birthday. It worked out just, just perfectly. But it, this age thing really came home to roost for me as we took a cruise with the oldest group of people, I think, who have ever cruised on a cruise ship in, in the United States. We were out of Bayonne, New Jersey, and people are just older in New Jersey than they are in the rest of the world. We had an old cruise. It was the scooter walker cruise. And some were kind of semi-powered walkers. I mean, it was the, it, there was so much equipment. They, they, it was one of those ships that had a little of everything. They actually had a place where they did bumper cars, but they had so many scooters. You had to do bumper cars to get down just the, just the hallways. So many people on, on, on scooters. So it was the scooter walker tour and, and, um, Amazing, just really an, an, an amazing experience. And I, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. It was just, it was a wake up call. It was a wake up call. I spent some time looking in the mirror. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the face of a Sharpay <laughs> looking back. So I, um, I took stock at three score, three score and one. And I looked down the road as far as I could see and I wondered, I wondered what that land called retirement might look like. And, and honest, today I have to tell you, I, I don't know if I will ever truly be retired. But for most people, the retirement centers on three core issues. Time, health, and provision. Time, health, and provision. 
And I've since taken a little bit of advice on some of these matters. And financial advisors always draw up their charts, fire up their calculators to help you arrive at your number. You're going to talk to anybody about what you're going to need in retirement and they'll start by saying, what's your number? And if you don't know what that is, then they're going to help you find your number. How much are you going to need a month to, to live on and to live how you want to live on? So how much should you have investments with social security tied into that? Uh, how, how much should you have to be able to be able when, to retire when you want to? What is your number? All, they always wanna know, they always wanna start there. What's your number? The simple question behind that is, will I have enough? Will I have enough? If I were to pull the room right now and ask how many of you have enough, how many of you don't have enough, there would be more don't have enoughs than have enoughs. Will I have enough? Do you realize how many struggles in life revolve around the subject of enough? Enough money, enough time, enough energy, enough education, enough faith, enough patience, enough wisdom, enough strength, enough already. How about this? I've had enough. It's a word that keeps popping up and the Bible speaks to it from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible speaks to it. And over the next three to six weeks, I want to take the concept of enough and bring it right down to where we live before. Because when we begin to understand how God interacts with this concept of enough, we begin to unpack vision of his character, a sense of his blessing, faith for the journey that lies ahead of us. Behaviors that bring us into uniformity with his will. Enough. You see, God has promised, you know the verses, to supply all of my need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So how then do we live our lives so as to walk in the fullness of God's provision? Enough. How do we live our lives so as to walk in the fullness of God's provision. Because this fullness doesn't just fall off the back of a truck. This fullness is the blessing that God bestows on his people who walk after his will and his purpose. So how, that's the question, how do we live our lives so as to walk in the fullness of God's provision? Enough. So let's start by turning to Haggai. Haggai is an Old Testament prophet, minor prophet. You'll find, for those of you who struggle finding him in your Bible, I understand he's only two chapters, but he is, just go to the center of your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Find that page and then take a hard left. Go two blocks, two prophets, and you'll run right into Haggai. You'll find him every time. Very easy to find. He's, he's the third back from the center of, of, of your Bible, so that, that will get you there. As we look at this minor prophet, I'm starting with this passage because here we catch a clear vision of people who did not have enough. And the scripture tells us why. I believe that it is a powerful word to the church today where I walk and the people that I interact with, I'm constantly hearing, Pastor, we, we, 
there's just not enough. We don't, there are people who are, they're crying out all of the time for some inadequacy, something that hasn't been met yet. Pastor, tell us, how do we live a life where we can see the blessings of God? Would you agree with me that God is a blessing God, that he does that? He does that? Um, Jesus said, I am come that they, the, the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, uh, King James, or uh, literally, have it to the full. In other words, I want to fill your cup to the brim and even to overflowing. The Bible says that he wants to give us, he desires to give us, even the desires of our heart. And so we've got to figure out how do we live our lives in such a way that we begin to flow with those blessings. And if something is hindering that, we need to unpack that too. And that, in that, we find a lot of help in Haggai. Read with me, starting in the first, first chapter, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Zehodak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, twice we'll see this, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Pretty sobering word, isn't it? So, let's set the stage. Haggai prophesied to a disheartened, dispirited group of former exiles from Israel who had been repatriated to Israel from Babylon. You know the history of the children of Israel. They would walk with the Lord for a little while and they'd fall off the wagon, and then a little while and they'd fall off the wagon. And if you look at the children of Israel and their spiritual life, it was like this for thousands of years. And God, after the kings, there, was a, there were a period where there were 26 kings in Israel and they got worse and worse and worse. And God finally said, you won't walk according to my will. I'm going to send you into exile. And there we'll let the Babylonians deal with you. I'm going to chasten you. I'm going to take away everything. 
everything that you consider to be of value. And then after 70 years, I will show mercy to you again. I'll bring you back. I'll restore you to the land and I'll bless you again. But it's going to be 70 years. Well, if you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar is raised up by God to destroy God's city and God's temple. Nebuchadnezzar marches in and he completely destroys the place, takes the walls down to rubble. He burns the gates with fire. There's no wood left in the city whatsoever. And if there is, it's just smoldering away until it's, it's ultimately burned out and it's gone. The temple, God's precious temple, God's precious temple is utterly destroyed. Not one stone remains on the other. The foundations are pushed out. The altar is destroyed, it's torn down. There is nothing that remains of it. And at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's destruction in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is nothing more than a smoking, dusty ruin sitting on a hill somewhere. And all of the people, the intelligentsia, all of the people with all of their power have been exported out of the land, taken all the way into Babylon. And for 70 years, children are being born during this time. For 70 years, the Jewish nationality, the Jewish race, the Jewish, the whole Jewish life and experience is lived within an exile context. Pretty desperate. During those 70 years, Jerusalem remains a virtual ruin. It has not been rebuilt. It is nothing but a bunch of rocks and dust and dirt and destruction sitting on a hillside. Lamentations paints the picture perfectly. Jeremiah, the prophet, writes in Lamentations. Here's how he starts that book. He says, how lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The poetic bent in Jeremiah respond. I, I just, I always respond to that when he says, how lonely sits the city that was once full of people. Well, after 70 years, God stirs up Cyrus, a godless king. God does not need evangelical Christians to run everything to do his will. If you, go th if, you walk through, if you walk through history, you'll see that God often stirs up who he will stir up to accomplish his purpose and his plan. He used Nebuchadnezzar and his will. Through the prophet Isaiah, 200 years before any of it happened, Isaiah said, there's a king coming, his name's gonna be Cyrus, and he's going to take you back from your captivity. He's going to be your deliverer. Cyrus wasn't even, he, he's 200 years from even uh, appearing on the horizon. He's not born and God announced what his name would be. Sure enough, as the Babylonian kingdom goes through different morphings, it becomes the Persian kingdom and the, the Medes are involved and it's kind of shifting along the way. As a new administration comes in under Cyrus, Cyrus says, we're going to stop doing things the way Nebuchadnezzar did them. We're gonna take all these captive people. We're gonna send them back to their homelands. We're gonna repatriate them and we're gonna, we've, we've also got the stuff that we took out of their temples. We're sending all that back. We're reversing our foreign policy. You know, God can work through Cyrus. He really can. And so God works through Cyrus and the people are sent back. Now the truth of the matter is a very small fraction of the people who had lived 70 years in Babylon wanted to go back. It wasn't like 80% of the Jews decided that they would go back. It was more like a tithe, 10%. Very small number. And they go back and say, we're going to reestablish Jerusalem, but first we're going to reestablish the altar before God. We're going to reestablish the temple. We're going to make God number one. We have learned from our mistakes. There will be no idols in Israel. Indeed, 
the 70 years of captivity pretty well wiped out idolatry among the, the Jews. But we're going to serve God, and then he's going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to give us the power to rebuild our city, to rebuild our, our identity. Jerusalem is going to rise up once again to be that place, that city, where God is honored in the earth and revered in the earth. And upon their return, they started out well. We have to go to another book in the Old Testament to find it, Ezra. And when you get to the third chapter of Ezra, here comes Ezra back to the destroyed city. And Ezra, this priest prophet, stands there in the ruins of the city. He says, it's time for us to begin. And so Ezra with Zerubbabel, who also is the great builder, Ezra standing there says, we're going to build this thing up. What did they do first? They cleared a space and they built the altar. They built the altar so that they could begin to offer sacrifice before God. So what they were saying in essence is, we're going to restore worship. They had not had an altar. They had not had the sacrifices in 70 years. Can you imagine what that was like the first time those offerings went up in sacrifice, what that did to the hearts of the people? And then Ezra and Zerubbabel are saying, this is, these are going to be the boundaries of the temple. We're going to carve it out. We're going to dig the footings. And they, they dig the footings and they lay the foundation stones. And they're, they're on the right track. Spiritual life begins again in Israel. And the walls are going to be rebuilt. It all starts good. It starts right they said, let's get worship first. Let's get God first. Let's establish him at the very fore of our lives. But then enthusiasm faltered. The construction project ran out of steam. They had a built altar and they had laid foundations, but they didn't get any further. And for the next 15 years, for the next 15 years, nothing was done for the rebuilding of God's house. Absolutely nothing. It is against this backdrop that Haggai is raised up by a prophet of God to say, I'm gonna have you shake up these people by saying, you say it's not time yet to rebuild my temple. You say it's not time yet for me to have my place first. But you've built your houses and you haven't built them on the cheap either. He talks about paneled houses. Most common Jews did not live in paneled houses with any wood on the walls. They lived in stone structures. And for them to have, pan it means you have scrounged and put together enough so that you could live in relative luxury and my house is still a ruins. See the problem? Now you say, I'm not sure that, I, you know, I mean, God needs to just give these people a break. No, these people need to give God his rightful place. So I just want God to give me a break. Give him his rightful place. What's his rightful place? All in all. Absolute number one. Priority in everything in my life. Yeah, by the way, we call that lordship. Lordship. So this is what's happening. Against the backdrop now of a destroyed city, a functioning altar, but no walls built on the foundations of the temple, and the people living in their fairly nice homes, Haggai sounds off, and he has a two-part in indictment. The first part of the indictment revolves around this. The people are charged with delayed obedience. Delayed obedience. Haggai says, 
these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not time, they said. Now, Ezra, Ezra thought it was time. Zerubbabel thought it was time. And all of the people thought it was time when they were scraping out the foundations and setting up the altar. As a matter of fact, everyone who was there that day felt like, we're going to roll with this thing. We're going to see the temple established. We're going to be well on our way to see the blessings of God unpacked in this city. Before long, the walls will come up. We'll, we'll, see, this, we'll see this great thing done. But somewhere along the way, they lost heart. And so they had only started and they quit. They'd returned with the best intentions, the best intentions, but they had lost momentum. Now they lost momentum partially because of opposition. In the 70 years where they had been gone, a lot of the people who lived in that region, indigenous people, they didn't want the Jews to come back and dominate the region. So they fought them every way that they could and they frustrated everything that they could. But the people who had God on their side lost heart and began to act with fear and stepped away from the rebuilding. They lost momentum. Once momentum is lost, it's incredibly hard to regain. I know this as a pastor. John Maxwell teaches this as a, as a, uh, as a, a principle of leadership. I don't remember, I think it's number 17 of his 21 irrefutable laws of leadership, and it's this, it's the law of momentum. The law of momentum basically says, when you've got it, it's tough to stop you, and when you don't have it, it's tough to find it. Anyone been there? I know as a pastor, when things are going really well at Calvary, I've learned a long time ago, when the wave is up, get your surfboard out and go like crazy. When the wave is up, when, when the wave is up and you've got momentum, you know, to start stuff, birth stuff, see stuff, do stuff, go. Because I've also been there when there are no waves. And you're fighting through some tough years. I think back to 2013, 2014, where we were stuck. You learn. You go with Mo. Momentum is tough to replace. On my birthday, while well, Sherry and I, actually on my birthday, we ported that day in St. Martin in Virgin Islands and just, oh, one of my favorite places in all of the world. Don't want to make anybody jealous or sick or anything, but it's just an illustration. We experienced while we were there, we did an excursion and we experienced the thrill of sailing on a 12 meter yacht, the Yacht Canada 2 that sailed in the 1987 uh, America's Cup. Remember Dennis Connor and those guys? Well, a syndicate came in in about 1989 and bought up all of those 12-meter boats. I think they've got nine of them. They've got the Aussie boats. They've got the uh, Canadian. They've got Canada Two. They've got True North. They've got both of the uh, both of the copies of the Stars and Stripes. And so I've gone down there and I've done it before. Can we bring that back up? Just leave that one up for now, just so people can see. Aren't they gorgeous? These boats. I mean, they are absolutely gorgeous. And when you have sailed like this, it's an, exhilarating, it's an exhilarating experience. Here's how I usually, when I read, when I get on a cruise and I read the excursions to see what's, what's coming, usually I do a lot of this. And I plan for the books I'm going to read on the ship while everybody gets off. That's kind of the way that I, I, I approach it. But this one, every chance I get to do this one, I do it. Because it really is a thrill. So we were tendered out to this famous 12-meter boat, Canada 2. 
Captain and two mates are already on board and they're assigned. And then they assign to us, there were I think six of us that day, they assign to us different duties and they show, they show us what we're to do and then they're gonna call out the game plan basically as we're sailing, if we're going to tack, if, if, um, you know, if, if, um, if we're, we're changing course, then they call out everything you're supposed to do. So it takes about 20 minutes, you get your instructions and then you're out into the, the blue water to sail a, a little bit. Pretty, pretty wonderful. Now the thing about 12 meters you have to understand is there's no motor, not even a trolling motor on these boats. None whatsoever. The only way you're gonna move is with the sails. How do you get, how, how do you steer that thing? How do you, you know, you've got to get momentum. Without momentum, you can't steer. As a matter of fact, with no momentum, you can spin the wheel all the way this way and all the way that way. And you know what happens? You're just spinning your wheels. What's happening? Nothing is happening. So what do you have to do? Well, they orchestrate everything. First of all, they get someone prepared to let loose on the anchor line up front because you're moored out in the harbor. And so, by the way, it, it, it reminds me of what the scripture says when we are to be done with or cast aside the sins that so easily be, there's some, if you really wanna move, if you really wanna see spiritual momentum in your life, you've gotta let go of all of those things that hold you fast. Right, you've got to, you, there's some stuff that has to go. But anyways, you get a guy up there on the, on the line and he's ready to, he's to cast off and let go. And then the captain will call for a couple of volunteers to go hoist the mainsail. That big mainsail that goes, they, to hoist, it's 75, that mast is 75 feet, That's, that sail is heavy. And let me tell you, I've hoisted at least three occasions when I've done this sailing trip, I've ended up on the crew and I know what I'm, look, I, I, I know what I'm up against. You, go, you, you have got to get your rhythm down and you got to get working together, three of you as a team, to hoist that mainsail. All I'm saying is it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of effort. It doesn't just happen. There's not a button that you push and the sail goes up. There probably is today, but there wasn't then. And so once you get that sail up, even then, nothing happens until a power beyond yourself comes into play. And what is that power? It's the wind. The wind comes and it fills the sail and you begin to move. And as you begin to move, immediately the captain needs to be ready to begin to steer because with momentum, you get direction. Then you can move that thing wherever you, but you've got to get some, that's a nautical term. You've got to get some headway making headway. It's absolutely necessary. So you gotta get moving. So you hoist the mainsail, you cast off the anchor line, the wind hits the sails, and you begin to sail. Hit the next slide. This is me sailing. I'm sailing. I feel like, what about Bob? I let the boat do the work. That was the secret. Actually, we're in fairly, it was fairly calm seas. Captain invited me to stand behind the wheel for about 45 minutes as we were making a run from one island back towards St. Martin. And you move the wheel just about that much in the front of that boat. So you ease it back this way. It was so much fun. So much fun. 
You say, Pastor, I'd like to do that this weekend. Buy us both tickets to St. Martin, and I'll, I'll tell you what. You buy the plane tickets, and I'll cover the sailboat, okay? But we'll go do it. Absolutely, absolutely fun. It's a thrill. Do you see the spiritual principles involved? Casting aside the thing that holds you back? You have to pour yourself into it. Then you need to realize, I cannot. The crew could stand there all day and try and fill those sails, and they'd never fill the sails. That's why some of you are dead in the water right now. You're trying to fill your own sails. What needs to happen? You need the wind of the Spirit to come and fill the sails. And when that wind hits, something begins to move in your life, and then you begin to direct all of your energies towards the path that he calls you to. When I was, when I was behind the, the helm, the, the captain said to me, you see that ship over there, we could see the harbor in the distance, see that ship over there, that ship, steer right for the middle of them, keep the nose right on the, or, or keep, the, keep the bow right on, the, uh, on that point, and just work it, and you'll, you'll take us right into the harbor. He was absolutely correct. What happens when we get a little bit of momentum and then we say, okay, God, what does your word say? That's where I'm going to set my course. You've got momentum, you're setting the course, and you begin to make tracks. And the winds pick up, and the speed picks up, and the power picks up, and the glory picks up. The whole experience picks up. Life becomes an adventure again. But you've got to get moving. See what? If we don't cast off the weight that hinders us, if we don't hoist the sails, if we don't tap into a power that is greater than ourselves, we're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Aussie captain was telling me the story. It was so quiet out there. He was sitting right behind me, and he just kept kind of constant. I'd ask him a question, and then he'd, he'd tell stories. The two crew who were with him, the two mates, I had sailed with him quite a bit, and they were telling me about uh, a day when they did a day sail over to one of the islands close by to pick up something, had some little bit of business there, were sailing back in the afternoon, and the wind was dying on them, but they felt like they were in pretty good shape, and they were, they were, they'd set the, the, the ley line so that they could make the harbor in St. Martin, and the sun is beginning to set, and all of a sudden, he said, like never before for him, said the sea went completely calm. He said there was no wind whatsoever, nothing to even cause the sails to flap at all. He said, this Caribbean was like a bathtub, just absolutely still. And the sun set. He said, here we were, just beyond the harbor. We could watch the lights of the city coming on in the harbor, but we couldn't get there. Brothers and sisters, some of you have been outside the harbor for a long time. You've been dead in the water because there's no wind in your sails. And you keep looking on and you're seeing the lights. The lights keep coming on in the distance. But you know you're never going to get there. That's what happens. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, you were running so well. What hindered you? What stopped you? Let's go back to Haggai. You were doing well. You built the altar. You carved out the foundation stones. And then you all went home to work on your own houses. You did not establish me as first. 
and so the consequences. You see, when you delay obedience, you have essentially disobeyed the Lord. Delayed obedience is just another term for disobedience. And when you delay obedience, you are robbed of enough. You will always live in that place where there's not enough. Let's look at the second part of the indictment. Not only delayed obedience, the people were charged with displaced priorities. Is it time, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? The building of the temple is abandoned. The people built their own house. The reference to paneled houses tells us that they were well-to-do, that their houses were really nice. Their houses had become status symbols. They took good care of themselves first, while all the time, no more than a stone's throw away, was that empty foundation and that exposed altar, that templeless worship site. And so, you have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You looked for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home I blew it away. Why declares the Lord? Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Divine priority. Is God number one in your life? Is Jesus the Lord? Don't use that word Lord without its definition. He can't be kind of Lord he can't be the first, second, third Lord of the Admiralty. He must be the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, absolute authority in your life. Is he? Because that's where this whole thing starts and ends with lordship. Financial coach Dave Ramsey, a lot of you have been through Financial Peace University. I endorse it a thousand percent. I cheer every one of you on who's getting out of debt and and taking control of your finances. But Dave, Dave says a budget will tell each dollar what to do. But if your dollars aren't told in that budget what to do, they'll slip away. Anyone say amen, that's the truth. Have you ever at the end of the month said, I don't know where the money went. And when you, you go back and you do a little bit of forensic uh, investigation, you find it just drifted away a bit here, a bit here, a bit here, a bit here. It's only the money that you take captive and the money that you trap that you're able to ultimately make do what you wanted to do to purchase your freedom. And I'm not going to do a Ramsey class here, but it's the truth. You have to take captive you have to take captive that money or else it'll just run away. How about when the scripture talks about taking captive every thought and bringing it into obedience, the, the obedience of Christ? Think of that. I've, if I don't take every thought captive, those thoughts will begin to run away and my thoughts will ultimately begin to lead me to a place called dead in the water. It's a terrible thing when you take your hands off. When you're done, you, that's been put in your hand and you're a steward of it, so you need a budget so that you can use that according to God's plan and purpose. You have your hand on it. You take your hands off it and it escapes. But that's, that's not nearly as frightening as this thought. What if God takes his hand off? And that's exactly 
what he says he did in Haggai. God took his hand off. What you brought home, he says, I blew away. You see, blessings are not static laws like gravity or the rising or setting of the sun. Blessings issue forth from the Lord, not from law, from the Lord. And if the Lord is effectively dismissed or demoted or something less than Lord, then what hope do we have? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. How smoothly we call him Lord. But it's nothing but an empty title unless he is truly first in all things. I hear people talk about the Lord all the time. And in reality, he occupies no such place in their priorities or in their affections. Remember that devastating question from the Sermon on the Mount? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things that I command you, or the things I say. This Lord, Lord, is familiar to us. If you know your Bible, Moses, Moses, God says. God calls to Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Jesus to Martha, Martha, Martha. Repeats the name twice, eight times in your Bible. And what it, what it does is it adds a level of relationship and connection. You know, if I'm to say, if I were to, if Don and I were having a, an issue, and I were to say, Don, and I would say, Don, what, what's happening? There's an emotional drawing close, isn't there? That's the Lord, Lord in Scripture, and the Don, Don, or the Martha, Martha, or if I were to say to Chris, Chris, and you know, if I really want to get, it's Chris, 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 Chris. Well, yeah, and he's going, what? It draws you into a, a different level of attentiveness, doesn't it? And so, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's the impassioned cry of the heart. Lord, look at the mess. Lord, oh Lord, Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And so the occupants of the city of ruins live in their spruced up houses amid the dusty piles of rubble and the priests carry out their religious duties. Understand this, religion does just fine in the absence of relationship. Religion is, religion is tough and stubborn and religion just goes on, but religion won't save you, religion won't take you to heaven, religion won't get anything done in your life. It's all about relationship. And that relationship is all wrapped up in that one word, Lord. Your Lord, I'm servant, you're the master, I'm your follower. I'm your disciple. Lord, Lord, religion's not enough. Religious people look to the heavens and declare that God is not fair. Well, God, I read enough of scripture to know that you're supposed to do this, 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 and this. And we get upset when we look around at life and say it just doesn't seem fair. In some cases, I, I'll tell you, there are some cases that are tough for me to figure out. I've seen people who seemingly have done all of the right things and yet are still struggling. I don't understand all of that, but I know that God is absolutely just and he's not finished yet. 
But more often than not, more often than not, I see people whose priorities have ensured their poverty. So let's talk about finally the consequence of divine withdrawal. What about, what happens when God takes his hand off? The consequences of of that. Therefore, verse 10 and 11, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, on all labors. God says, I'm withholding. Told you, I don't like withholding. I can give you a salary number. What's your salary number? Here's Here's how much I make. And the moment it falls from my lips, there's something in the back of my mind that says, but that's really not what you make. You know why? Because of my big uncle. My uncle, Sam, and my cousin here in North Carolina, they take a whole bunch of stuff. It's withheld. I I, I know it might be necessary and everything, but I have to tell you, and I feel, I feel somewhat condemned because I, I think this thing through, I, I know what I'm saying about myself. I have never got my check and said, Lord, I just thank you so much for that part that's withheld there for the government. <laughs> Man, I just, I rejoice. Look at the withholding in this check, Lord. I am so, oh, Jesus, you must love North Carolina. Look at what you're giving them. <laughs> yeah. What if the God of heaven, because of our delayed obedience and our misplaced priorities, says, I'm going to have to withhold my blessing. Withhold my blessing. Twice in this passage, God says, consider your ways. And so we begin a series of messages here together where we're going to be considering our ways. And if my friends, and you are my friends, and my fellow, you're my fellow sojourners, we're walking together and we're suffering together sometimes and we fail together from times and sometimes we know some, but we're walking this out together as we are living this out. If you find yourself making no headway, if you find that the wind is completely out of your sails, if you find this morning that it seems that blessing has escaped you, if it seems that yours is the story of what you bring home being blown away, if you live with a perpetual sense of not enough, then over these weeks, let's consider our ways And let's look to heaven, to the Lord of heaven and earth, to the master of provision and grace, our source. Let's come to a new place of faith where obedience leads us into provision. Are you willing to put it all on the table? 
Lord, I want to know what it is to have a deep, deep sense that it's enough. Will you bow your heads with me?